Well, thank you so much, Pam and Andrew, for being so vulnerable and sharing uh, your journey with us. Um, it's, uh, it's been so great to uh, hear all these many uh, stories over these last few weeks of, of journeys of faith. Um, I just have to personally say some of these are, are really inspiring and challenging for me. Um, if you're like me, maybe there's that little voice inside of you that even wonders as you hear these stories, um, would my faith last through such challenges, through such difficulties? Would I make it through those kinds of challenges? Um, it has been inspiring to hear these stories because they do show us that Jesus is alive in people's uh, journeys and their stories, and he is doing great things, even despite great difficulty. But as we also hear these stories, we may wonder, do we have what it takes to persevere, to continue in the race that we began maybe years ago? In fact, uh, salvation is like that. It's like a race. That's one of the, the great biblical pictures that we get of salvation. Uh, it's not a sprint. It's more like a marathon or a long, lifelong journey. The kind of marathon that is long and has stops and rests and peaks and valleys, setbacks and triumphs. In the race, there's the preparatory work before the race, right? So we talked about election, how God, you know, looked uh, into the future. He knows us before we were born and he chose us for eternal life. It's amazing. Um, we also experienced our journey before Jesus. We can also see God's hand at work even before we started on the road with Jesus. And then there's the starting line, regeneration. God changes our hearts. We're converted. We're adopted into his family. We're made right with God. We talked about all those very important concepts in salvation. Next week, we're going to get to the finish line, glorification, what awaits us. Last week, we looked at sanctification, the race, so that we're growing. We're on this race with Jesus, and, and it's, it's long, and it's progressive, and, and God's doing a work of saving us and working out the salvation that we already have. Today's message is an aspect of sanctification. It's the moment in the race when you get a stomach cramp, and you lose your mud in the shoe, your shoe in the mud, sorry, you fall, you skin your knee, it's raining, and you slow down and you start walking and you start wondering, am I going to get through this race? What, what assurance do I have that I'm going to get through this race? And then you look around and you see other people falling out of the race too. You're like, oh man, that guy is quitting the race? Oh man, she is dropping out? Man, if she is dropping out, like what hope do I have? And you start to wonder, and you start to doubt. And then you realize your shoes are no good. You forgot to hydrate properly. Your breathing technique is bad. And you're considering quitting your walk with Jesus. You start to look over on the sidelines and you see all these people just sitting back, relaxing, eating hot dogs, drinking their Gatorade. And you think, man, that looks... That looks pretty nice. Those people are onto something. Maybe this Christianity thing isn't what I thought it was. Runners call this the wall. I remember when I 
hit a wall while I was traveling on the West Coast Trail. It was a seven-day hike uh, along the coast of Vancouver Island. Day four of that hike, I hit the wall. We did 20 kilometers that day, down hills, across rivers, through mud. It was at least 12 hours of hiking. And when you hit that wall, you become disoriented. <laughs> you forget why you signed up for this thing, you know? And you just want it to be over and you want to be back home. And when you hit that wall, you need perseverance. Many of us, most of us, if not all of us, will hit a spiritual wall in our walk with Jesus at some point. And when that happens, these three questions will come to our minds. What assurance do I have that I'll get to the end? Number two, how do I make sense of all these people leaving the race? And number three, what can I do now to get through this wall on my journey toward the finish line? Perseverance means getting to the finish line, ending your race with your faith intact. Perseverance is the teaching that all true believers in Christ will persevere in the faith to the end of their lives because they are preserved by the sustaining grace of God. When we talk about perseverance, there are also two other issues that come up that can't be avoided. They are the issue of apostasy and preservation. So continuing with the idea of, of sanctification and the human side and the divine side, perseverance is the human side of the coin. The, the fact that we have to persevere in our faith where preservation is the divine side of the coin. God is going to get us there. He is going to preserve us to the end. Related to this is the reality of apostasy, which can be defined in different ways, uh, but basically it means falling away from our faith or renouncing our faith in Jesus. Uh, apostasy can uh, happen kind of in two ways. Uh, either it's a, uh, we actually stop pronouncing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We, we, we profess that we no longer believe with our mouths. Or we just show, we demonstrate by our lifestyle that we have a lifestyle that is totally unrepentant. There's no evidence of a transforming work of God in our life. So you can see where the tension lies. On the one hand, we're saying God preserves us. On the other hand, we recognize people fall away. So how do we make sense of this? This impacts salvation. Is salvation something you can lose? If so, how is that good news? If not, then how do we make sense of people who leave the faith? And so we're going to look at these three aspects. That's what our sermon is going to be about. Preservation, apostasy, perseverance. Let's look first at preservation. And we're going to look at our text in Romans chapter 8. So I invite you to look there into verse 31. This is the end of Romans 8, which is an amazing chapter in the Bible. It's an important chapter in the Bible. This is where Paul is going to just crescendo and praise for salvation. So here's what he says. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who 
indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Salvation is a glorious thing and Paul is celebrating it in this passage. Uh, a number of years ago, when I was a much younger person, I was about 19 at the time, uh, of a couple of friends of mine from college, they had invited me to join them in a relay triathlon. So my one friend was going to do the biking, and my other friend was going to do the swimming, and I was going to do the running. So I had to get ready for this run. I started doing a few little runs and trying to get myself in shape. And uh, we got out there that day. They did their part. I was the last one to, to cross the finish line. So my, my friend tags me. I start going around. You know, I get about halfway around the, the lap. And, you know, I'm starting to feel it a little bit. And when I come around to the final stretch, I'm really feeling it. I'm, I'm hitting the wall. I am like, oh, man, this isn't worth it. I'm not going to get there. And then my two friends run up to me. And they go, Chris, you can do it. You only have one more lap. What? <laughs> I, no, what do you mean I have one more lap? But that's the finish line right there. No, no, that's just halfway. You got to do it again. <laughs> so much to my surprise, I had only done about four kilometers. I had to do eight and I had to do a whole other lap. Now, I know those of you who are running, this is just... Uh, embarrassing to listen to because you run far, far greater distances than that. But um, I was like, no, how am I going to do this? I cannot do another lap. I've already hit the wall. I cannot push through this. But do you know what got me through? It was my friends. It was the fact that they kept encouraging me. They doused water all over me. They, they gave me water to drink and they spurred me on. And somehow, by some miracle, I rounded and I got on the home stretch and I finished, but I wouldn't have got there without their reassurance. See, Romans chapter eight, those verses that we just read, this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to reassure you that as you face this race, that God is going to get you there. He's going to get you to the finish line. And he's given you a number of reassurances that will give you hope and peace as you do that. You are preserved by God's love for you. Our salvation is not anchored in our ability to be perfect. It is on the sure ground of God's love for us in Christ. So let's look at three aspects that Paul talks about here. Actually, for the first one, I'm going to cheat a little bit and go back a few verses earlier to verse 16. So why don't you go back there to verse 16. And the first point is this. Uh, God's going to reassure us that God's present love for you in your spirit. That his spirit is in you. Here's what he says. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is right on the heels of Paul talking about being adopted by God. He says that part of that adoption is that the spirit of God will bear witness with your spirit that you really belong to God. That the spirit is in you now and confirms in your heart this deep sense in your heart that you're adopted, that you belong to him, that he's your father and that he'll never let you go. So is there, look for evidence of the spirit in your heart, in your spirit, confirming that you belong to God. Do you have that? A second reassurance, God's proven love for you on the cross. Look at verse 31 and 32 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. What Paul is doing is he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. His logic is if God has already given up his own son for us, would he then withhold himself from giving us our lesser needs? Now, notice I said needs, not wants. We can't hear what Paul is saying here and say, oh, okay, so God gave up his son for us, so that means he'll give us whatever we want. That's not what Paul's saying. But he is saying, if God has already given up his most valuable possession for you, his own dear son, will he now be stingy and withhold from you your other needs? Kent Hughes says it this way, since God gave his only son for us, he will withhold nothing beneficial from us. So again, the ground of God's present love in your life is the cross. When is the last time you paused and you reflected on the cross? We're going to get to do that next week at Easter. And you really put yourself there in the scene, in the story. You read through the Passion Week of Jesus in your Bible and reflect on his love for you. If he did that for you, he's going to come through for you now. God has already proven he is for you by giving up his son. He's for you. Just let that sink in. He's for you. Third, God's pleading love for you at his throne. Look at verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. To intercede for somebody means to plead on their behalf. Paul says Jesus is interceding for us. He's pleading for us. He's literally praying for us. Paul gives this picture of the divine throne room. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And he's leaning over to his father. And he's pleading with him on your behalf. So again, just meditate on that. As crazy as it sounds, the Bible is teaching that Jesus pleads for us. And every need that we have, every sorrow that you go through is a sorrow in his heart. Every praise and victory is a victory and praise in his heart. So 
Picture your friends, okay, running up to you as, as you're running the race. And they encourage you with these three things, right? Remember God's presence in your spirit, in your heart. Remember the cross that Jesus gave up all for you. The father gave up his son for you. Remember the throne. He's up there praying for you. Be encouraged and reassured by these realities. But of course, we need to acknowledge the big elephant in the room, right? What about those who've left the race? What do we do with that? Can we lose our salvation? Because unless uh, you've maybe had your head buried in the sand, you maybe have noticed that there's a number of uh, these stories out there these days, what we call a faith deconstruction story, uh, or prominent leaders in the church in recent days where there's been a number of scandals, uh, outright renouncements of faith, or people who've left historic uh, Orthodox Christianity and kind of made a new thing. Each of us personally know people who are struggling or doubting. Some that they don't have a problem with Jesus, but they might have a problem with the church, but then eventually maybe have a problem with Jesus too. There's been past hurts, there's disagreements, there's bad theology, there's temptations, there's spiritual oppression, and people fall away, and it's discouraging to watch. And we start to wonder about ourselves. We're more and more aware of these stories and these situations, and we all know people in our lives who've walked away from Jesus, and it, it breaks our hearts. So what are we to make of this? Well, for starters, I think we have to affirm what Paul says all throughout Romans 8 here and many other places in the Bible, by the way. We have to affirm that a person is genuinely saved and they will not lose their salvation. A person who's genuinely saved will not lose their salvation. Otherwise, Paul's words here make no sense. By the time Paul utters that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He's already assuming that his listeners have genuinely come to Christ. There's evidence of that in their life. He assumes that we can know that and celebrate that. So for those who renounce their faith in Jesus, uh, we need to affirm that they never had the genuine thing. But I want to nuance that a little bit. Because on the human level, it gets messy. And let me demonstrate that. I want to suggest there's a difference here between apostasy, so completely renouncing one's faith or falling away, and the process we call faith deconstruction, though they are related. Faith deconstruction is a process. Apostasy is a result. Uh, faith deconstruction is a process that does not necessarily have to result in leaving one's faith. Uh, for the sake of argument, I'd say there's kind of two kinds of deconstruction that go on today. Uh, there's a good kind, there's a bad kind, okay? So the good kind would be this, uh, that you deconstruct church culture using scripture. Uh, this kind of deconstruction is what Jesus did. It's what the prophets and the apostles did too. Um, maybe you've grown up in the church and, I mean, you look at the church and you, today and you see a lot of uh, not good things, and your concern for the church, and maybe it even leaves you with a lot of questions and doubts and disillusionments. And maybe you're reading your Bible and you're looking at church and you're like, I don't know how this fits. That's not necessarily a bad thing that you're doing. I mean, Jesus did this. You have to remember that Jesus often confronted very religious people. 
There were ideas and teachings and lifestyles and practices that skewed real Christianity for people. And Jesus had to tear that stuff down. He had to deconstruct it. You know, my son, when he plays Lego, um, he buys a new Lego set, like a Lego dragon. He'll bring home the set and he'll build the whole thing, like immaculately, it, it looks great. But about two weeks later, you go and look at that Lego creation and it's all different. <laughs> and um, there's other random pieces in it. And so what do we have to do? We have to go back to the instruction manual and we have to start to deconstruct, to take things away so that we can get it back to the picture it's supposed to be. That is not a bad kind of deconstruction. And that's what we're doing in the good kind of deconstruction. Look, maybe you've seen things in the church or maybe you notice them in your own life or your own heart that don't belong. We need to be committed to removing those things, submitting them to Christ so he can revive us. But remember one thing. If you're going to address issues in the church, in your own life, do it with grace. Do it with humility, with honor for others and for biblical reasons. Often, I will have to say the vast majority of complaints that we will get as pastors, and this doesn't matter about this church, it's any church I've ever worked at, vast majority of complaints, there's not usually a biblical reason behind those complaints. So if you are going to bring genuine concerns, may they be biblical ones, but do them in the spirit of Jesus and address those issues that way. But let's talk about the other kind of deconstruction. Deconstructing Christianity using the philosophies in our broader culture. That's the second type. So now in this kind of deconstruction, we're not using the Bible in any way. We're actually deconstructing the Bible using the philosophies of our broader culture. And this kind of deconstruction usually ends up in people quitting the church and quitting faith entirely. So this would be kind of like taking the Lego set and just destroying the whole thing and building up nothing in return. This is where it gets messy, though, because even if someone is deconstructing their faith in this way, sometimes they're still deconstructing a skewed version of Christianity, and sometimes they're not. Uh, how could that be? Well, I, I, I want to give you a few factors that I think are leading to a lot of this deconstruction that make this really complicated and should give us a lot of pause and a lot of reflection so that we can think of how to address these types of things. Uh, first, there's widespread biblical illiteracy in the church. You know, people who thought they knew what the Bible taught and they really didn't, you know, and then someone challenges the Bible and they don't know what to say and they start to have doubts and disillusionment. There's widespread pain from family breakdown. You know, people who grew up with a Christian family and um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they, they look at their parents and they're just like, man, my parents, like, they don't act like Jesus at all when we're home, right? Like, okay, we go to church, we do this Sunday thing, but then at home, it's very, very different. And that leads to this disillusionment. There's widespread technological advancement in communication, which has led to awareness of horrific evils in the world, exposure to major intellectual challenges to the Christian faith, Exposure to other religions and cultures and worldviews and perspectives that challenge us. There's widespread technological addiction that's leading to emotional unhealth and mental unhealth. All this leads to questions and doubts and struggles. 
And we have to just have grace for the fact that we're living in a moment where there's been a mass amount of change and people have questions, people have doubts, people have struggles. It's kind of like when you're on that seven day hike again without a backpack or proper footwear or food. Or Jesus might have said it this way. It's like a, wheat, a seed that goes into the soil, but the soil is either hard or it's not very deep or it's full of weeds, right? People, the seed is going out there to people, but there's the soil that it's going into is not healthy soil. Look, Jesus told us people would fall away from him. It's true. But one of the things that we see happening in our post-Christian world is that people are also falling away from a mutant form of Christianity, thinking it's real Christianity. And that should concern us. Means that we need to show those people what real Christianity looks like. But we also have to root out the false religious spirit in the church. Jesus told a parable in Luke 15, right? It had these two sons, right? And one of them takes off. He takes his father's money and he wastes it all. But then, of course, he... he comes to his senses, he comes back and he's given this welcoming party by his father. His father embraces him and forgives him. And we always think of the story and we think of that first situation. Those are the people who leave God and come back. But remember, there's another son in that story, right? The other brother who kept close to his father and also though had no love for his father. And when the brother came back, he didn't want to celebrate in the party. And Jesus is showing us that there were actually two lost sons. And one of them is lost because he has a religious spirit. And so if we're going to think about apostasy, let's think not just about that prodigal son who runs off, but let's also think about the hard-hearted older brother who represents a legalistic religious person. We have to have both those categories in our mind to think clearly about what the gospel really is and who God really is. And yet, even with that older brother, that hard-hearted older brother, the father extended a warm hand of grace to him. That's the father's heart. You see that. So where does that leave us? From a theological perspective, from a divine perspective, God has the power to preserve his children. And if you see evidence of the spirit in you, you can have assurance today that you're saved. However, from an earthly perspective, it sometimes just feels and looks messy because it's a lifelong pursuit with Jesus. You know, when you hit a wall, it doesn't look pretty. <laughs> it doesn't look nice, but it's normal. You're going to hit, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have struggles, temptations, sins. You're going to fall sometimes. Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, great book, highly recommend he says this about hitting spiritual walls in our lives. He says, without an understanding of the wall in the journey, countless sincere followers of Christ stagnate there and they no longer move forward with God's purpose for their lives. Some of us hide behind our faith to flee pain in our lives rather than trust God to transform us through it. We utter platitudes like, all things work together for good. We smile and we sing contemporary praise songs about our victory in Jesus. We don't curse or get bitter toward God. We keep it together to demonstrate to the weaker members of the body and the watching world that our faith is solid and strong. The problem is that emotionally healthy faith admits to the following. I am bewildered. 
I don't know what God is doing right now. I am hurt. I'm angry. Yes, this is mystery. I'm very sad right now. Oh God, why have you forsaken me? Does your theology have room for that? Because like a third of the Psalms are laments. This is all over the Bible, the book of Job. See, one of the reasons I think people give up on faith is because they aren't aware that things are going to feel this way sometimes. But it's a vital moment in your faith to do assessment in your soul. If you've hit a spiritual wall, quitting Christianity is going to feel good because it feels good to just quit and go get a hot dog. But will it be worth it? Will it be worth it in the end? This leads us to the third uh, thing we want to meditate on, perseverance. How can we persevere? Has God given us any present helps for our journey with him that will help us persevere? That will help the journey not feel so heavy. (laughs) What are the means God uses to keep us persevering in the race of faith? Jesus said, take up my cross. But he also said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those things work together somehow. How can we run this race in the light yoke of Jesus? This is where spiritual disciplines come in. Prayer, church community, scripture, worship, silence and solitude, recreation, family, being in nature, creativity, meals with friends, service to others, the disciplines of the Christian life. All these disciplines, they form a lifestyle of the easy yoke of Jesus. They position you not to earn favor with God, but to receive grace from God. Why should you consistently meditate on the scriptures? Out of duty, out of delight, hopefully, But what about another motivation? If you're on a journey, why do you drink water? Because you have to? No, it's because you need it (laughs) to survive. You're desperate. You need it or you won't make it. Why do we pray? Why do we read scripture? Because we always love it? Or is it because we're desperate? I mean, look at Psalm 88. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Man, Why is this psalm here? To depress you? No, it's to give you language. When you hit the wall. God has inspired these poetic prayers to give you comfort for when you're in that moment, in that crisis. There's this um, great music video I saw recently. I posted it on our kids' Facebook page so you can go check it out. It's by a guy named A Boy and His Kite. That's his his, uh, artist name. And in this video... 
he's singing this song to his daughter. So it's him and his daughter. They're kind of looking at each other and kind of spinning around and they're just singing to each other. So what's happening here is his daughter, he wrote this song for his daughter and his daughter has a speech issue. She can't get her words out very well. And so he wrote this song for her and she, she lip syncs it back to him in this video. And it's just, it's just beautiful. <laughs> and that's, that's what God's doing here in these scriptures, right? He's giving you language that you can pray back to him. He understands your experience. He loves you and he wants to give you words so that you can cry back out to him. He understands everything we're going through and he gave a book that is full of story and it's full of poetry and it's full of wisdom literature and prophetic literature and color and authenticity. God knows our experiences and when we read this in context, rightly understood, it is a precious gift to our souls. It is water on the race, on the road. Jesus has invited us to take up our cross, but he's also invited us to carry a light yoke. The spiritual disciplines help make the road lighter for us. I know many people who hit a spiritual wall and when you ask them, do you have a plan for spiritual disciplines in your life? Usually those things are fairly lacking. And so our struggles are amplified. Meditating on the scriptures, regular pouring out your troubles to God, sincerely, making every effort to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ, getting away from the crowd, Recreation, fun, and laughter. Laughter is good medicine, it says in Proverbs. Family time, being in creation, church, service, hospitality. You, I mean, the list goes on. See, church, we need each other, too. We need each other. We're not going to get through it. This is a marathon. It's not a solo marathon. It's, it's, we're, we're together in this thing. And not only that, but Hebrews 12 reminds us that there's also the church throughout the ages, that is in the stands cheering us on. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It's the picture of a race. And this, in the stands are the great saints, all the people who've gone before us, your grandmother, your grandfather, the people who knew Jesus. And they're cheering you on. Let us lay aside then every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance, perseverance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're going to talk about that joy that was in front of Jesus and that joy that's going to be in front of us next week. But let me just add one final word. For those of you who have loved ones, who have given up the race and they've walked away from their faith, I want you just to remember a few, these are just some pastoral encouragements. Just remember a few things. Remember that the story is not over, okay? They're walked away right now, but who knows how their story will end? Who knows? The story's not over. So pray for them. Keep praying for them. Show grace to those who have doubts in your life. But Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt and struggle. Remember, God sees their hearts, not us. They don't need you to be their judge. God is their judge. He'll do what is right. Listen more than you talk. People want to talk about their faith struggles and they want a listening ear. 
Remember God is a good father who waits for his kids to come home. Four, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have assurance. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, I pray for my friends listening. I pray um, that God, you would help them today to walk in the light yoke of Jesus. Still carrying the cross, but Lord, would you lift those burdens? Would you make it manageable for them? Would you help them to rediscover that light yoke that you offer us in the spiritual disciplines? God, thank you for your reassurances to us that we are saved, we are your children, if there's evidence of that in our hearts. Father, I pray for those listening who've maybe wandered away. Father, I pray that you would help them see how much you love them and you're for them. And Father, I pray uh, that you'd be with each one of us in all of our stories and all of our situations. Lord, would you provide all of our needs uh, this week? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.